welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast, Episode 5. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and my guest today is Dr. Laura Franklin, the chair of the Fine Arts Department at St. Louis University. I'll be talking with her very shortly. An update on Link University. Classes started last week. Schedules were configured to make it work for those finishing up, which took some time. And Lincoln is hosting its first band battle since 2009 against our rival, Langston University. The battle is this Friday, September 2nd, at 7.30 p.m. in the gymnasium. The game, the football game, is Saturday, September 3rd at 2 p.m. at the football field. If you're local, come check it out and bring your earplugs. Laura Franklin was my first percussion ensemble teacher when I was at UNCG, where she was finishing up her doctorate in percussion, and I was just starting my master's there. After finishing her coursework, she took a job teaching percussion at Brevard College in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and she's now the chair of fine arts at St. Louis University. She and I have kept in touch throughout the years because she's also been on the board of the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy. And I am probably the only person who has been to all of these conferences without being a board member. Not bitter. I talked to her at her home in St. Louis on June 12th, 2016, as I was heading further out of town to Louisville. And more on that trip on the next podcast. But for now, a story about percussion, teaching, and West Texas living, starting right now. Laura Franklin, thank you for talking with me today. It's a real pleasure to be here, Pete. <laughs> In your house? Yes. Um, I wanted to begin with uh, how you got, we're going to back up a job, but I wanted to, want you to talk about getting the job at Brevard okay. and what the process, what the interview was like, what the program was like when you got there. Okay. So um, I got the job at Brevard during, or right after I'd finished my coursework for my doctorate at University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Where we met. Right, that's right. And the way that came about is that the current percussion teacher there, Diane Cash, was taking a sabbatical. Diane had been a former student of Court McLaren's um, when he was in Oklahoma. Okay. And, um, yeah, yeah. So she called Court asking if there was a doctoral student or a graduate student who wanted a one-year sabbatical replacement gig. Uh, Court recommended me. And so I drove to Brevard, I don't know, I guess this was in May mm -hmm. of 1998, yeah. and met with Diane, talked to her about the studio and the students, and, um, and that was the interview. The next time I drove, <laughs> the next wow. time I drove to Brevard was in August, where I moved into uh, faculty housing. Wait, 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 hang on. So you, you didn't, you just talked to her? I just you talked to play. her. Nope. You didn't like meet any students? Not a single one. <laughs> All right. The drive took longer than the interview. 
Because what is it? Uh, it's two and a half hours or something. Or it's, it's more. It's like more like three. Because it's or so. Because it's a. Uh, where is it's it's southwest of Asheville. Okay. Even so, yeah. it's 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 quite a ways out there. Yes. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, I don't know what happened in the interim. I don't know if the dean had said, "Well, just find yourself a replacement" or what. Mm-hmm. But, but I learned later that they were also transitioning to a new division chair at the same time they were looking for me. So yeah. there wasn't that sort of person in place to yeah. really shepherd this process along. So it was okay. quite informal. And at that point, it was a one-year faculty sabbatical replacement position. Okay. So I moved into my faculty house in August and didn't even unpack all my boxes because I thought, well, I'm only going to be here a year, so yeah. I only unpacked what I needed to teach my classes. And yeah. um, So when I got there, I was teaching uh, percussion lessons and ensemble. I was also doing a music appreciation class and a sightseeing class, so kind of a, you know, a general, general area. I had not yet finished my doctorate. I was ABD at that point. Um, that was August of 1998. I was applying for jobs that year because I expected to not have one at the end of that academic year. And Diane called in March or April and said she decided to change careers and she wasn't coming back. Wait, where did she go? She had she had taken the sabbatical to get her massage therapy license. And she and her husband are marathoners, or at least were then. I'm not. Okay. I've lost touch with her, unfortunately, since then. Okay. Um, and so she was really interested in uh, sports massage therapy. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so she decided that's really the direction she wanted to go. She'd been in percussion for a very long time, and yeah. um, so the dean called me in and said, "Would you like to continue your position for another year?" Mm. And, and I said, yes, what a relief. And yeah. I unpacked a couple more boxes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so wait, what, this was April or something? Or yeah, this was, this was um, At the end of probably the beginning of April in yeah. my first year. Yeah, so April of 99. You hadn't heard anything from your other, other things you applied for? I, I actually had a telephone interview for a percussion and like assistant director of bands. Um, at a university and didn't, you know, but I didn't get any other positions, so I was very and you happy. Didn't take a, uh, you didn't get on campus to that level, I guess, to that, to that job? No. Okay. No. Um, Can we say the school or no? It was Kansas State. Okay. Yeah. Oh, State. all right. Yeah. Um, Wait, was Kurt already there? I don't know. I can't remember who was there at, the, at that okay. point. That was in... Um, that interview process would have happened in 1998-1999 in that academic I think year. That might have been, I think that might have been when he came in. Yeah, maybe. Because he had come to um, one of the first NCPPs, like at UNCG, uh-huh. and I knew he, he was already at Kansas State at that point. Okay. Anyway. So, yeah, so okay. that, might, that might be when that hire yeah. took place. Um, at any rate, I was very happy to be able to continue. Yeah. You know, like, oh, well, this is nice. Because because at that point, not knowing, I was applying for jobs at uh, music stores and, I, you know, you didn't know. I didn't know. So. You just were looking for something. Looking for something. Yeah. Right? Trying to be gainfully were employed. Were you done yet? I was not done yet. Okay. Um, yeah. I had. I guess I finished the writing or was finishing up the writing, but I finished the writing that summer, mm-hmm. 1999. Um, 
and finished up everything for my doctorate in 2000. Okay. Uh, February of 2000 is when I had my dissertation defense and was officially done. Okay. Um, by that point, so the 99-2000 um, academic year, they decided to do a search for the position. It was a limited search. Mm. Um, I was... For, I'm sorry, for the, for for, the 99-2000 year or for the 2000-2001 for the year? Okay. Yeah, so, so I was still... During year two. That's right. Okay. So during year two, I was still considered a one-year kind of term appointment. Mm -hmm. It wasn't tenure track, anything like that. Yeah. So they did the search during that year for the following academic year, the 2000-2001 year. I, I got the position and was then tenure track in the 2000, starting the 2000-2001 academic year. Um, Were you worried about losing your job for that? Or like, cause they, did they bring people in or? I wasn't worried about it. Okay. And not, that sounds really um, cocky and arrogant. And I'm, if you know me, not a cocky or arrogant person at all. I don't know you at all, Laura. Okay, well, <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, I am neither cocky no, nor not. arrogant. Um, but by that time, I had already uh, chaired the music department curriculum committee, uh, shepherded through a whole uh, curriculum revision for the department, shepherded that all the way through the college. Wow. Um, I had been put on the uh, core curriculum revision committee for the entire institution. Um, I had been put in charge of recruiting I mean, at that point, I had said yes to so many things that uh -huh. I that I that realistically, I thought, well, okay, if I don't get this position, it's it's bad <laughs> for all these other reasons, right? Right. For, so, um, but boy, that is a risk to do all that without being in a full time position. There, there's no, yeah. Yeah, absolutely it is. <laughs> That's why I'm and I so don't know. Stunned. Yeah. Um I wasn't I wasn't getting advice or counsel that was telling me to not take those opportunities. In fact, I was getting the opposite from my um, more senior colleagues in the department, particularly in the instrumental area. Yeah. So I had a lot of support from the director of bands, a lot of support from the jazz saxophone guy, and a lot of support from the brass um, and they were senior colleagues, and they were uh, very vocal, and um, so I just, I really felt like I had a group of people in the department who really had my back, and they yeah. were respected in the department, respected campus-wide, yeah. so. Um, well, you know why this is, right? It's because you were good at it. Well, it may that be. was a mistake, <laughs> because now they're starting to give you stuff. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished, right? right? It's That's that. Right. It's yeah. that thing. Yeah. Yeah, so already that early on, even without having any sort of permanency to my position, I had already become really deeply involved, not only in the departmental sort of uh, shared governance structure, but in the college-wide structure. Yeah. In fact, that second year, 2000-2001, I was elected as the divisional representative to faculty council. Oh, wow. Which is like a faculty senate mm -hmm. in other places. Yeah. Talk about risky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I look back on this now, and I think about the faculty members that I mentor, the junior faculty uh -huh. members that I mentor, yeah. and and I think I would caution them against it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Yeah. It's very risky, <laughs> knowing that that's exactly probably how I got my tenure track yeah. position, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. There's no... Uh, 
I think there's probably no cookie cutter approach and sure. it's very institution specific and very person specific, individual yeah. per, uh, specific, but, but it worked out fine for me. Yeah, that's great. Fortunately. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, and that's, I didn't even know that you were not, I may have remembered if I had really thought about it, I may have remembered that you had, that you had gone as a, it was temporary to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea that it was like another year. How long it took for you to just be a yeah. full-time? Yeah, it was, it was two, years two full years before I got a full-time Before you could start the track. clock, the tenure clock. That's exactly right. Yeah. And no no credit was given, yeah. so that's, which is fine. I didn't even have my doctorate till excuse me, February of 2000. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was an interesting and somewhat precarious way to start, I suppose. Yeah. But... Um, but I learned a lot of lessons that would serve me well later on. Um, like. I'm a big believer that if I'm a big believer in saying yes, now you can take that too far, sure. right? And become yes. really overcommitted and burned out and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But when opportunities came my way to do things like shape curricula or become involved in assessment or um, accreditation, I said yes because I wanted to know more about that aspect of how a university works. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad I did that now. Um, right. You know, that has definitely, definitely served me well. Yeah. Um, did you know back then that this might be where you want to go? I had no idea. Okay. I had no aspirations toward administration okay. at all. Um, it became clear pretty early on that I had some talents in in those sorts mm-hmm. of administrative type areas, yeah. um, and that people recognized that and trusted me with. Well, for instance, the summer of two thousand, I um, I wrote our institution's NASM oh self study. Oh. Again, I didn't even have a full time tenure position. I have a co- one of our my colleagues <laughs> is is in charge of that, and I'm so glad she does it. Because she's done like the last two of them, yeah. And, and I know that it's just, and she's letting everybody know that this is an enormous undertaking. Well, yeah, it is, <laughs> and I can also guarantee you that never, ever during that summer did I ever think I would write another one, and certainly not as chair. Yeah. And lo and behold, ten years later, same institution, yeah. I was chair writing the next one yeah so it was a really interesting it's been an interesting path and whenever you look backward down your path you can see how every point every stop along the way has led you to this point but it's like doing a maze backwards do you know what i mean when you start at the end and you're like this is so easy you get right to the beginning yeah 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 yeah, it's not that way when you're going <laughs> right. <through it> forward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, what the what? How did I end up here? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, they, they would show you the, like the, what you think your path is going to be, and it's like, you know, a straight oh. line. It's like, and then they're like, what it actually is, and it's just like, yeah, that's exactly just a bunch right. of lines and <laughs> random directions. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, that position, the Brevard College position was a great great perfect position for me as a first position because it's so small um, that if you are willing and able you can wear so many different hats and you can right. learn so many different things so what's the enrollment um 720-ish and 720 yeah oh, total wow. it's tiny yeah. yeah and during the time I was there it fluctuated um, I guess the lowest year was 620 okay 
the highest year was probably 750 or oh, so. Wow. So, so yeah, yeah, a really small range. Yeah. And that said, you know, the music program um, was always a really big portion of that. They always stayed right about 10% of the overall student body. They're, they're less than that now, but um, yeah. but that's that's a pretty big proportion, if you think, of a, yeah. of a college student body. Yeah, so right. yeah, so it was a fun program to be in because it was really um, it was a going thing, you know. It was mm-hmm. growing and moving and. Yeah. Um, is there a, there's a music festival there too, right? There is. Is a, that related to school or no? No, there are okay. two separate entities. Brevard Music Center is its own its own thing. It does a summer festival, but it's a year round. You know, have a year round staff and. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, what a great thing, and just the name Brevard and having that associated with music yeah. helps the music department at Brevard College, too. And there are a lot of um, sort of partnerships and, mm-hmm. you know, ways that we share resources and that sort of thing, but they are two separate entities, for okay. sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump ahead. So when did you, because um, I, like, I like starting with talking about the, job interviews <laughs> really doing that so compare so you had a very I would say an unusual um, Quite. performance job interview absolutely for, for your percussion position now what was what's expected of you when you took the um, your current job at St. Louis University so the interview process at St. Louis University for, and what's your and position there I'm chair of the Department of Fine and Performing Arts at okay. St. Louis University mm-hmm. so that interview um was was quite different. It was grueling. It was three 14-hour days. Mm. Um, the way it was structured is that by the end of my three days, I had sat down with each and every full-time faculty member, either individually mm. or in a pair, okay. um, and talked a lot about the overall departmental goals, vision, as well as each of the four program areas. So so in the department is um, art history, studio art, music, and theater. Okay. So they're, they're basically four departments, right? These are four very different areas, yes. of course. And the chair is, you know, tasked with um, leading all four. Yes. So I was happy to have the opportunity to have so many conversations at so many different points in the interview process to really get to know the people and what their aspirations were for the department and for their programs. Um, Of course, I talked to the dean, to the associate deans, um, staff, therefore, uh, full-time staff also. So I had had sessions with the staff and... um, it was it was great. It was a great process. It was exhausting, of yeah. course, but you know, in a job interview, you are interviewing the people hiring you just as much as they're interviewing you. Yeah. And so I had done a whole lot of research before I even came on campus, and I was, you know, there were a lot of questions that I had, mm. and um, you know, clearly they had a lot of questions for me. I didn't find out until later that there had also been an internal candidate. Um, the selection was made based on departmental vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, whenever I found that out, I thought, oh my gosh, how's that person going to react to me? Um, and it, it's been fine. It's been great, I think. So that person is still there. Yep. Yeah, in fact, I have four former chairs in my department. 
which is interesting. All, <laughs> all of them left of their own accord. You yeah. know, none was sort of kicked out or voted sure. off the island or anything yeah, like yeah. that. So that helps. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this one exception, you know, he had been a chair in the past, at a point in the past. Um, the position came open, he applied. He didn't get it. He laid low that first semester, the fall semester. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame him. I think he was, I think it was hurtful, right? He'd been colleagues with these people, some of them for 25 years, yeah. and they voted for a stranger. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know what like, I mean? Yeah. yeah um, but. Did you feel like the, um, maybe hard, I'm not sure how well you can assess this, but did you feel like the, they needed an outside person? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I think that, well, so it's not, it's not the norm for St. Louis University to hire external chairs. Okay. The norm is typically to appoint somebody in the department. Yeah. Um, so the fact that this department even argued for an external search said that they really felt they needed to at least cast a wider net. Yes. Right? Um, I don't know that they thought necessarily they were absolutely going to go with an external candidate versus an internal candidate. Yeah. I think they just really wanted to see what else was out there. Yeah. I also think that um, they didn't want to be, well, at the same time I came in, so I came in July 1st as a new hire, as an external chair. Uh, the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences also started on July 1st, external. <clears throat> the provost also started July 1st. She was external. And the president had only been there, he was in his second year. So everybody above me, um, sort of in the administrative structure, also was brand new. And I think they really, the department, and this has been affirmed in conversation since then, really felt like it was an opportunity to, um, to go a different direction or to do some different things or to do more of what they were already doing. Mm -hmm. um, and the one of the former chairs in my department, who is an associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences, um, said to me, I want to give you background, but without the baggage that all the rest of us are carrying around. So I appreciated that and thought about that. Yeah, so I don't have the baggage, right, that my, that my colleagues do who've been here a while. Um, but, you know, I ask questions and I try to understand the background and try to understand the genesis of things. You know, yeah. why is this like this? <laughs> right, yeah. Right? But I think they've appreciated the, the direction and the vision and the energy and the enthusiasm mm -hmm. that I've brought with me. And yeah. I think they recognized maybe that that's what was needed for this department at right. this particular time. You put on your cynic hat. <laughs> I want to no. fit in, though. I don't know where my cynic hat is. <laughs> I've never been able to find it. I've never ever That's located good. that. <laughs> That's great. I did teach a class. I did do a lecture for, or a session, uh, for a world music class, which mm -hmm. is something that I, you know, I've taught a lot before. And But the teaching expectation is one course a year. Okay. So because it's so little... There wasn't a whole lot of emphasis put on, you know. Yeah. Basically, I mean. wanted to make sure that you could, you know, hold, you could actually teach. Yeah. That's, really, really <laughs> That's all. Matter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we done like five minutes. In. I feel like I made my point. Yeah. <laughs> we go lunch. Like, right, what's next? When when uh when the interview was done after those three days, did did you go? Did they offer? 
for you, or did you did you go? Did you feel like you had it, or were? I felt really good about it, mm-hmm. in terms of um, my own sort of self presentation, if sure. you want to call it right. Yeah. Um, I also felt really good about who these people were and who St. Louis University was. Right. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. just had a good feeling about the whole situation. I thought it, it could be a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, the interview was a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They had a department meeting to take a vote. I was the last candidate. They had yeah. a department meeting to take a vote on Friday morning at 9. They all said, the vote's Friday morning at 9. You'll hear one way or another after that. Yeah. I got a call at 11 o'clock on Friday morning with with the job offer. Mm. So I knew pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. Now I already I was also a finalist at a different institution okay. and that was that interview process was Monday, Tuesday of the following week. So I did not accept the offer right away. Sure. I just wanted to see what this what the other situation would be mm-hmm. like or felt like. Um, yeah. but it was it was really obvious after those two days at the second institution that um, that St. Louis University was really where I needed to be. It was really a good fit. It felt yeah. good all the way around, and so. Did you, uh, did you get an offer from the other place or no? I had an informal offer from the dean. Okay. Um, she, it was not on the schedule for her to take me to dinner, but she took me to dinner mm-hmm. um, after the second day and was very complimentary. We had a great conversation. She said, "I I can't imagine." that we'll find anybody better qualified and blah, 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 blah. And what do you think? What are your thoughts right now? How do you feel about it? And I told her I had another, that I received an, another offer, but I hadn't accepted it yet. And um, and I wasn't expecting that from the second place for sure. Sure. Um, so that was a real, that night in the hotel room after that dinner was <laughs> really difficult going, oh my gosh, what, you know, what do I do with this? Do I wait? Do I, mm-hmm. um, but really the, the very next day driving back to North Carolina, it was clear to me what I needed to do. So clear that I pulled off the road and called St. Louis University to accept and called the other place to withdraw. So. Wow. So yeah. I didn't, I was wondering, cause I was wondering, I was going to ask if you, if you got an offer and were going to negotiate anything with it or if you just, sounds like you just. Yeah, I just knew. I mean, I knew that that was, but St. Louis University is where I, it was just such a good fit. I mean, I just felt it. It felt good on all, all sides, all aspects of it felt good. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, interestingly, it's not because it's not because of anything like the facilities are so great or the equipment so wonderful or the program's so big. That's not what attracted me. That's not mm-hmm. what felt good about it. Yeah. What felt good about it was the people mm-hmm. and the mission. Mm-hmm. It all felt like, okay, these are people who I want to work with. These are people who I want to spend eight hours a day with. Yeah. You know, This mission is something that I can really get behind that fits with my <laughs> own personal... Uh, is this a fine? Is this a school of fine arts mission, or is this a college? Because the, the university. So, so St. Louis University is a Catholic Jesuit institution. Um, I I'm not Catholic. I'm Protestant. Um, uh, but what resonated about the mission to me is um, educating the whole person, and the the tagline that St. Louis University uses is higher purpose, greater good, mm-hmm. and that's how I personally approach things anyway, mm-hmm. that um, 
that I'm not in it for me, really. I'm in it to, to try to help other people be as successful as they can be or help you know, my program or my department be as successful as it can be, um, sort of the best version of itself that it can possibly be. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely a lot of work to be done, but to be working alongside people who are aware of the mission and who believe in the mission and to be working in an institution that is very mission-driven feels so good. Yeah. So to have everybody sort of pulling on the rope in the same direction, and that you know that's not to say that we don't have disagreements. Of course, we're you know we're thirty human beings, right. um, each with opinions and experiences. And advanced and, degrees, who already know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> already know. Yeah. I mean, faculty <laughs> members are not the easiest group of people to deal with, but um, but it does help when you've got some real foundational core values in common. And so that was that was and remains a very attractive part of this position to me. So I feel really fortunate to be here. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, do you like St. Louis? I do like St. Louis. It is as as we were talking about when you first came, it is such a different life experience than Brevard, North Carolina. So I had other life experiences, but my children certainly did not. They were born when we lived in Brevard, and mm-hmm. um, but I, yeah, I love St. Louis. It's a big city, but it's really easy to to get around in. Mm-hmm. The traffic is real. I mean, well, it depends it, on the part of the day, but yeah. No, 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 really? no, no. It's, I mean, it might take me twenty minutes to get mm-hmm. into Midtown. Yeah. And that's a high traffic day. Yeah. And I just can't even complain about that. I mean, yeah. I've spent time in Atlanta. I, w- yeah. I lived in Boston Just for five years. My parents <laughs> lived near Austin. Yeah. And I think, no, 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 no. You just don't understand right. how easy this is, this place is to get around. It's very, uh, it's a very livable city. Yeah. Lots for families to mm-hmm. do. And yeah, I really do love St. Louis. Yeah, it's a pretty good town. Now it's darn hot. Right. right. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, good transition, because where did you grow up? I grew up in Texas. Yes. I grew up in West Texas, between Lubbock and Amarillo, in a little, little town called Abernathy. I was trying to remember the name, yes. Abernathy. Yes. I can't believe you can remember that. I, well, because um, when the um, National Conference on Professional Pedagogy was there, one of the years, I think you picked me up from the airport. Yep. And... And you were explaining that you were from here, which I found hilarious because a colleague of mine who went to Texas Tech for mm-hmm. his, I think his doctorate, before I went to that conference, I said, what's, having no idea, I was like, what's Lubbock near? And he said, uh, Lubbock. Lubbock is near Lubbock. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so when you were, when, I, when you told me that you were from Abernathy, because it's like one of the only towns that's on a sign that's near Lubbock. <laughs> right. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's not a lot out there, yeah. um, and I grew up. Uh, why were you in? Why why is your family in Abernathy, or why was your family? In Abernathy? I don't know. That's just. Where, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my family has been in Abernathy so long. So my maiden name is Phillips. Mm-hmm. Um, in Abernathy, there is a part of town called the Phillips Addition, and there's a street called Phillips Boulevard, because that land uh, used to belong to my great grandparents. Mm. My dad's dad's dad. Okay. The, I mean, so we go back a long, long way okay. in Abernathy. My um, parents both grew up there. Mm-hmm. 
you know, my aunts and uncles all grew up there. It's just, it's, it's home. I mean, that's home in a way that people don't necessarily have. Right. You have real roots there. Real deep, yeah. deep roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What did your, what, uh, what did your parents do? So, um, I, I grew up on a cotton farm. Okay. Uh, we moved into town when I was 13. Where, where were you before then? Uh, we were five miles east <laughs> on a cotton farm. <laughs> Our closest neighbor was two miles away, and it was a dairy farm. Okay. <laughs> so I see. Was, you, you think there's nothing in Lubbock. You should be on a oh, cotton farm oh, in I the middle of that, West I Texas. I just said there's nothing here in Lubbock. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You can probably see the other you place can. from the five miles down Yeah, I mean, this table has more interesting uh you know topographical features than where i grew up but anyway so my grandparents my dad's parents were cotton farmers and so were his parents and their parents and so my dad farmed for my granddad um but when my dad was 22 i was two my grandparents uh basically fired him and said farming is no way to try to make a living and raise a family. It's much too hard. There are much, so many things you can't control when yeah. you're a farmer. And so he started working at the John Deere dealership in okay. Abernathy. So I'm just trying to get time. So is this like the late 60s or something or early 70s? Yeah, this would have been in the early 70s. Okay. Yeah. So he went to work for the John Deere dealership. But what he actually did is he would get up at 4 or 5 in the morning, mm-hmm. work on the farm, Yeah. go in, work at the John Deere house, uh-huh. come home, eat, and go back out and work on the farm. Oh, wow. Because he loved it so much. That's what he really, really wanted to do. Was My dad was farm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was his, this is what he was supposed to do. But yeah. but anyway, so um, so I grew up, you know, my first summer job was the summer after fifth grade, and I hoed cotton for, I think, $1.25 an hour. Do you know what that is? I know what. I know what a hoe looks like. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's so, about as much as I can. I've so seen cotton plants. It's 100 degrees, yeah. right, outside, and you're a kid. Yeah. I was, what, 10? Right. 11? Yeah. With a hoe by myself in yeah. the middle of a field, uh-huh. and you walk down these rows, yeah. some of which are, well, I guess our longest rows were probably... Would you weigh half like mile. 50 pounds or something? Like, like the probably. Hoe probably was half your body Probably, weight. yeah. <laughs> so when you saw a weed, you just killed the weed with yeah. the hoe. Yeah. That's hoeing cotton. It's the most miserable. That sounds amazing. It, <laughs> wow. But, so, so, I hoed cotton uh-huh. for my granddad for $1.25 an hour. And I put my money into a checking account. I opened an account at First State Bank, Abernathy, Texas. And the very first check I wrote was for a snare drum to start beginning band in sixth grade. First check I wrote, 100 bucks. Because you were, uh, in fact, not excited by the work, the cotton farm work world. (laughs) Well, no. Something I could see myself doing for the rest of my life, and it did get better when I got old enough to drive the tractor in the summer. That was a big step up. Although I had to drive the old tractor, which mm-hmm. had a buggy top, and mm-hmm. the versus the new tractor that had a hard top with air conditioning and an AM radio. Ooh. That was 
that was a that was town. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Oh, it was hot. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so I worked on the farm. That was my summer job every summer mm-hmm. till I got out of high school. And that's how I bought all my percussion gear, <laughs> my school clothes, anything I wanted. I bought with my own money, wrote my own checks. That's awesome. Yep. It was a good way to grow up. It was, <laughs> it was a hot way I'm to sure. grow up. Yeah. It was a good way to grow yeah. up. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I would point out, you, you have pretty, I would, you probably, did you burn? Were you just like, you, you used to be a lobster, basically? I was so brown when I was a kid. <laughs> I burn now, but I had like a, like a perpetual farmer's tan mm, yeah. as a kid. <laughs> Including, so I would always wear a, a uh, like a baseball style cap. Yeah. A, usually a John Deere cap. Mm-hmm. And I would get home, and I would have this dirt line right across my forehead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My face would be so round because of all the dust. I would oh, take yeah. off my hat, and my forehead was just as white. That's <laughs> <laughs> <was> really funny. <laughs> anyway. Because there was not. We didn't do things like put on sunscreen. <laughs> no, gosh, care no. about our skin tone. <laughs> Absolutely not. Sunscreen? What's that? No, no, no. Yeah. Gosh, no. Anyway, so yeah. So I grew up in Abernathy. Did you have, do you have siblings? Uh, yes, I have a younger brother. Okay. He's five years younger than I am. And what does he do? He is a prison guard trainer okay. in Texas for the okay. Texas Department of uh, Criminal Justice. Oh. So he's down near Huntsville, a little, little town called Love Lady that's smaller than Abernathy. Which direction? It's north of Houston. Okay. So it's in the southeast part of Texas okay. where it's really hot and humid. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, so is he close to San Antonio? Kind or, of. Or Austin? Yeah, he's uh, like two and a half hours north of Houston and two and a half hours east of Austin. Okay. Which nothing is out there. Yes. But a bunch east of prisons. A yeah. whole bunch of prisons. <laughs> that's about all that's out there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. The piney woods of yeah. Texas. So how did you even um, get into music then? Well, so this is an interesting story. So... I lived out on the farm. We were in, we lived in a really tiny little house um, that belonged to my great uncle. Actually, mm-hmm. we lived just half a mile from my grandparents. Uh, I came home from school one day. I got off the bus, walked in the living room, and there sat a piano. Okay. Well, I didn't ask for a piano. Uh-huh. No one was coming. Nobody discussed this with me. Yeah. I was in the second grade. But I thought it was the most awesome thing ever. Mm-hmm. So it was near Christmas, and I sat down and figured out how to play um, Little Drummer Boy. How prophetic is that? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. Um, I figured out a left-hand part and a right-hand part. Mm-hmm. and So anyway, my parents just let me kind of mess around, and mm-hmm. then they, um, I started taking piano lessons after Christmas when I was in second grade. Mm-hmm. And I asked my mom, Later, you know, when you're in second grade, you don't tend to ask your parents deep probing questions about anything. It's just, wow, this piano's so cool. But as it turns out, my mom had always wanted to learn how to play the piano. She'd always okay. wanted a piano. Her family could never afford one. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so this was like an upright... It was just, yeah, I still have it. It's oh, a yeah. little upright spinet piano. Okay. It's down in my basement as we speak. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, yeah, she said that... Um, she and dad had talked about it, and they had a little extra money, and my grandparents, my dad's parents pitched in and mm-hmm. bought me a piano. So um, I loved it. So yeah, I started taking piano lessons young, in second grade. Was it a, was it new or was it, or was it was, it, it was or? new. Okay. Yep. 
from. How, do you know how much it cost? I have no idea. Okay. I should ask. I bet they remember. Because <laughs> it would have been a big purchase yeah. for them, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, they bought it from Gents Music in Lubbock. I'm pretty sure that's where they bought it. Anyway, um, <laughs> but it's no longer in business. Okay. So, I yeah, I, I really liked music. I liked playing the piano. At the end of fifth grade, the uh, band director interviewed all the fifth graders to see what instruments we wanted to play mm-hmm. in beginning band. So beginning band started in middle school, fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And um, he brought me into his office. It was my turn. And he said, what do you want to play? And I said, I want to play the drums. And he said, well, girls don't really play drums. Do you have a second choice? And I said, well, if I can't play drums, I want to play trombone. And he said, hmm, you have a third choice? And I said, well, if I can't play that, then I want to play tuba. He was like, you're not interested in flute or clarinet? I said, absolutely not. I don't want to play a girly instrument. (laughs) So so he relented and let me play percussion. Uh But I was the only girl. And so I was, of course, you know, I was put on all mallet parts, only mallet parts. Mm -hmm. Well, me being me, I'm like, well, if I'm going to play only mallets, I'm going to be the best only mallet player in the whole wide world. So I loved it, and I did well, and Uh yeah, I ended up being very successful. And anyway, he left when I was a sophomore in high school, and I got different band directors who were really very supportive and, uh, you know, hooked me up with lots of cool opportunities. And so were there any, did any other, uh, females come through the program at this point or were you still the only one? Around? Well, there was a, there was a girl three years older than I was. So yeah. she was in ninth grade when I was in sixth grade and we were in high school band together. She was a senior when I was a freshman. Yeah. She also was a percussionist, but only played mallets. Okay. Um, and by the time I got into ninth grade, I was taking lessons from Alan Shin at oh, Texas yeah. Tech. Okay. So that was only, I went to um, I went to band camp the summer after my eighth grade year, mm-hmm. and he heard me play and asked if I wanted to take lessons, and I was like, oh, sure. <laughs> Not having any sure, idea yeah. <laughs> what what path that would set me sure, on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so I started taking lessons from him in ninth grade, and uh, he really pushed percussion, percussion, percussion. So, mm-hmm. you know, I finally did round round out things, and that was good. Did you, because um, you mentioned buying the snare drum, mm-hmm. were you still playing your snare drum even though you were doing all the mouth stuff, or did you just... Yeah, it? so on, so things like when we were lo- working out of a method book, mm-hmm. you know, we're all back there going... Right? Mm-hmm. You know how sixth grade band was it's as a percussionist. Oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> but if there was music to be played, right, yes. Christmas concert right, or whatever, yeah. then I had only mountain parts. I never played any music on a snare drum or timpani or a bass drum or yeah. anything. Yeah. yeah. And if there wasn't a mallet part, I was given a flute part to play. On mallets. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a bad idea, actually. No. The flute part's probably pretty interesting, actually. Definitely more so than those snare drum parts, right? right? Yeah. Um, and probably more so than the, the mallet parts you were getting. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Undoubtedly. So, yeah, so it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting musical journey, I yeah. guess, too. I was very, um, 
I don't know. You know, it was really, it was a really small town. Mm-hmm. Now that said, there were a ton of people in band, so that was kind of a going thing. That was mm-hmm. a good thing. Um, but it's not like I was growing up in this musically rich area of the world, yeah. <laughs> right? I wasn't surround. I didn't have opportunities really to go see orchestras, and my parents weren't really. Yeah, they're not musicians. They weren't really clued into that sort of thing. They yeah. could have gone to Lubbock Symphony, but I'm sure it never occurred to them mm-hmm. to take us. That just wasn't something I guess we did. No, no, yeah. of course not. And in fact, the first time I ever even <laughs> played in an orchestra was when I made All-State Orchestra. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so that was kind of a wow. This is so great. Mind blowing experience. Yeah. 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 So that was that was pretty cool. Um, what year was this? I mean, what like what year? Was I was you? a junior in high school okay. when I played in all state orchestra, mm-hmm. and even I mean I'd been going to Texas Tech band and orchestra camp, mm-hmm. but. The orchestras, I guess, were all string orchestras because I didn't play in one. I always mm-hmm. just played in band. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I could say a lot about my upbringing in Abernathy, Texas, but uh, it was a good way to grow up in terms of uh, work ethic and mm-hmm. a solid moral center and sure. having unconditional love and support from not only my family but all my friends parents you know probably had 17 sets of parents they all went to high school with my parents sure yeah their parents went to high school with my grandparents so it was was just this very very tight-knit community everyone knew everyone else absolutely and by the time you're a senior in high school you're over it you're going oh my gosh i cannot wait to get out of this place well you you didn't have the the one difference i would say though is you didn't have like older siblings so no. you set you actually so I'm wondering what your brother like dealt with when you know you were you did your thing and then he in a totally actually different generation right yeah pretty much I mean five years is yeah, forever yeah it that's is. a long time yeah yeah yeah, yeah so um, so went to school at Texas Tech right for my undergrad mm-hmm. which is only 20, 20 minutes away mm-hmm. but I might as well have gone to school in Zimbabwe mm-hmm. I never ever came home. My mother was mad at me the whole time I was there because I just never, yeah. if the dorms closed and physically made me leave. And you had, you were like, okay, maybe I'm hungry. No, not even that. <laughs> I would starve. <laughs> Laundry, I care. I was not going back. These pants put themselves on, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, and, and then I went to, um, I went went to grad school in Boston yeah. at NEC, which again might as well have been Russia, mm-hmm. as culturally different as it was from West Texas. Yeah. I my mind was blown every single day I lived in and Boston. You still never came back to Abernathy. I never did. And <laughs> and my mom, bless her heart, I think really held out hope until I was probably forty that I was that I was someday gonna move back to Texas. Like uh-huh. she was just sure that I would come back because uh-huh. nobody in our entire family has ever left and stayed away. Yeah. They all, all oh, of them, on. always. They all come back. Yeah. And I'm not done yet. It's still possible, I guess. But. <laughs> but yeah. uh, and she will point out that every move since the Boston move, I've mm-hmm. moved closer. So Boston to North Carolina to Missouri. So yeah. I am closer. Uh-huh. It's true. Yeah. We're in the same time zone now. 
That is so a huge thing. Something. Yeah. No, no trying to like think about calculate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's that. But um, but yeah. <laughs> did you um, did you even look any? I mean, how much at that point you had the connection to Texas Tech because of the summer camps? Yep, and taking lessons from gotcha. um, Alan. Yeah. Um, did you even consider any other school for undergrad? Yeah, not only did I consider other schools, but I considered other majors. Um, so I was valedictorian in my high school class, so I could have gone to any um, state-supported institution right. in Texas mm-hmm. for free. So I had lots of choices from that point of view. Sure. You know, financially, it wasn't it wasn't an issue. They were all the same, essentially, sure. financially. Yeah. And so I applied to um, University of Texas and Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. And Texas Tech, those were the three I applied to. Um, only, only gigantic institutions. Right. <laughs> because my 50-person class in Abernathy High School really prepared me well for a gigantic institution. Uh, yeah. Anyway, clearly I wanted something different yeah. that I grew up with. But uh, Texas Tech and Texas A&M, I applied to the School of Agriculture. Okay. Um, I was going to... Well, A&M doesn't... Even now, they still don't really have... They don't have... No, not like a music major. Right, right. So I applied to the School of Agriculture. I was going to be an ag economics major. And University of Texas, I applied to the School of Business. I was going to be a business major. Mm. And what I had thought, really, um, since I was about 11, about what I would do with my future, is I really thought that I was going to go into ag economics Mm. or economics economics. And then get a law degree and be a lobbyist for the cotton farmers. Oh, wow. Um, I was really, you know, I was at a time in my life when I was 11, my grandfather had just died, um, the, the farmer grandfather. Mm-hmm. And I was beginning to see how market forces impacted um, the income of a farmer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you could work and work and work. The weather could be perfectly in line with what you needed it to be when you needed it to be. Yeah. Um, but if the market were down, mm-hmm. you still wouldn't make any money. Right. Um, and that's assuming that the weather cooperated, which always, not, not, it really doesn't ever happen that way. <laughs> right. So. Do you want drought or like or really floods. bad drought? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> floods, well, I, drought, or really bad Yeah, drought. I mean, it really, it's degrees of horribleness. <laughs> so when all that, when all of it lines up, right, when the market and the weather, your yield is good mm-hmm. and the prices are good, one of the phenomenon that we saw in Abernathy, you know, during the 70s and early 80s, is that you could always tell when the last good cotton crop was by the age of the vehicles riding around. Oh, that's oh wow! No kidding. Yeah. Because every single farmer, um, whenever they had a good cotton crop and they had money, yeah. they would go buy with cash, pay cash, a new vehicle, mm-hmm. and they might not get another one for fifteen or twenty years. Seriously. No, I. Yeah. So that was ours. I mean, my dad bought a truck in 1980, a uh-huh. Chevy Silverado, and uh-huh. he drove that stupid truck until like 2002. <laughs> Seriously. He's got an eight-track player with a. <laughs> just just uh, log into the scene albums or something, That's or right. like Conway Twitty stuff. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, more likely Conway <laughs> Twitty. But yeah, yeah, but really, there were I don't even know probably 50 
1980 Chevy Silverados in Abernathy, Texas. <laughs> so you could always tell, yeah. you know, oh, well, 1980, yeah. that was a good year. <laughs> do, you, do, you want, do you want silver or dark gray? <laughs> well, and those trucks were all the same. They yeah. all had a color on the top and silver on the bottom. Yeah. So my dad's was red with silver. Yeah. There was blue with silver. There was white with silver. I mean, but it was the same truck. And yeah. that's all you saw. Right. It's quite funny. Anyway, so I was really passionate about this, right? Because yeah. these things affected the livelihood of my family in a very direct way. Yeah. And the existence of Abernathy mm -hmm. and all the other little Abernathys in West Texas in right. a very direct way. So the yeah. people who taught school, they're teaching farming, farming family kids, right? Yeah. The people who own stores, yeah. well, they're selling stuff to farming families. Right. Yeah, so. So would there be periods of time where... Um, and maybe not your family, but other families would have where the kids would just not even go to school because they had to go, they had to like farm. No, okay. um, by the time I was coming through school, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that, it wasn't quite that way. Certainly a generation back, yeah. my dad's generation would have been like that. Yeah. Um, but for us, most of the farming families at that time were able to hire um, at least seasonal help. Mm -hmm. Um, harvest is when you would really, you know, as soon as the crop is ready, you need to get out of the field as quickly as you can. Yeah. And even then, it was a pretty labor-intensive um, undertaking. Mm -hmm. um, not not so much now if you have a three-quarter million dollars to spare for a cotton harvester. Sure. Right. <laughs> Which no one does, but anyway. <laughs> it's a whole different. I could talk about the economics of farming for a long time. Because it's really still something that's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So, Back to, did I apply to any other schools? Yes, I did. And I decided to go to Tech. Um, I, I don't know. I felt better about going to a school in agriculture in cotton country. I mean, right. that, that whole area of Texas. And so I, that's what I started out doing. So my first two uh, Dean's List certificates and my first two President's List certificates are from the College of Agriculture at Texas Tech University because mm. I started – I started out in ag. Did you? Do you still put that on your uh, your CV? I do. Awesome. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I don't. <laughs> you, you don't. You should. No. Because it would be like if someone's really like, looking what? at your thing, be like, please tell me about. Me. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Why were you? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I I quickly realized that my heart was calling me to music, and. <laughs> were you still doing music stuff? I was, yeah. I was, yeah. I was in marching band, and I was in wind ensemble and mm. percussion ensemble, and I was taking lessons. I was essentially, I looked like a music major. Sure, you were round enough. I was. <laughs> I just wasn't on paper right. a music major. So anyway, I remember calling my parents toward the end of my first year at Tech, and I said, um, "I have something really serious to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. Can I take you to lunch?" Well, they were. I learned later, terrified that I was going to tell them that whatever I decided to join the mafia and run away to Sicily or, oh. you know, um, so we went to the one restaurant in Abernathy, Texas uh -huh. called restaurant and he sat down. Well, if it's and, the one, I guess you don't need, yeah, a, doesn't need you a, don't really need to be more specific. No, it has a name now, but then it just said restaurant. Uh -huh. So, um, so we sat down and ordered, and they were clearly quite anxious. And I said, well, I hope you're not disappointed in me, but um, I've decided to switch my major to music. Mm -hmm. And they both went, 
Oh my gosh, we were wondering how long it was going to take you to figure that one out. I was like, really? You're not mad? No, they weren't mad. They were not even surprised. And here I was just agonizing over this decision, right. thinking I was going to be this huge disappointment to my parents. <laughs> so parents know more than we give them credit for, apparently. But you still haven't moved back, so there is that. They still, there still is that. that. They are. They are. They are. <laughs> Although now they're talking about moving here. So eh, maybe. Oh. They may be they may have let go of that oh, dream. Oh, that is a we'll that is see. big news in the in the Phillips household. It, you have no <laughs> idea. None. That these people are even contemplating leaving Texas is like wow. <laughs> They're probably like, this is as close as she's going to get. So we may need to, maybe we need to make a sacrifice here. <laughs> we need to meet her in the middle. Yeah. I mean, I did move from Boston to North Carolina to here. I mean, I think I've, I think I've really done my part. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like packing anymore. That's all I'm saying. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Pretty happy. So, so what, um, what were you, so tell me a little bit more about just being at, Tech. Now that now you're in so music. Now I'm in music. Yeah. yeah. So what were you? Uh, what was well, your so I there? started thinking that I would do an edu and I actually in fact started as an education performance double major. Mm -hmm. I um, did some substitute teaching for high school bands in that first year as a music major and really really hated it. Mm -hmm. Thought this is not what I want to do. Yeah. So I dropped the ed major yeah. and was able to graduate a year early so I, I did that whole degree in three years even though the first year I was officially an ag economics wow. major but well I tested out of every oh, single yeah I took all clep yeah. tests and tested out of every single gen ed non-music requirement that there was so yeah. um so that helped that's impressive that uh if nothing else that again go back to Abernathy that it, or at least you had courses there that could or you had a you had a way to get out of those courses going to Texas I have Tech. to say so I mean Abernathy is tiny there were 250 kids in my high school 52 in my graduating class mm -hmm. I should not have received the quality of education that I received probably right on paper it's right, like paper, oh yeah. yeah this is yeah. Uh, no 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 it was a fantastic education, and I was very well prepared. I clepped out of all my science, all my math, all my history, all my English, mm -hmm. everything. So, so yeah, I mean that I was that's, that's why very, very years. well prepared yeah. to go to go to college. So, yay, Abernathy! <laughs> <laughs> I am um, one of my favorite days of my life. Still, is when I got the news that I was gonna when I tested out of math for college. Like, I was like, you know, yes! like, yes, no more calculus. I know. I was so excited. I, I was really happy, too. <laughs> and I thought, you know, those tests cost 40 bucks each or something. They cost money. It was yeah. worth every oh, yeah. single penny. Oh, I bet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was great not to so have to do that. Because you were, because you were there three years, mm -hmm. do you feel like you missed out on it? I mean, it just I'm just thinking about the amount of time that you're there. Yeah. I must, I'm, I'm imagine and please tell me if I'm wrong that you probably like you still you must have had a full schedule anyway I through. plowed through I was taking 21 to 24 credits every semester mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't just halfway doing them either I got through that 
sucker with a 3.972. So I was I was working hard. So what's the what's the blemish? Oh, I'm sure you know yeah, what it is. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Mary Jean Van Appeldorn's form analysis and synthesis class. And the I know the only reason I got a B is because I had a concussion that semester. Me and my horn playing friend Alkin, Alton Adkins from Rawls, Texas. He's now in the Fort Worth Symphony and his wife is the executive director of Fort Worth Symphony. She's my classmate at Tech, Amy okay. Adkins. Um, anyway, we were at a Phi Mu Alpha Mu Phi Epsilon picnic, uh -huh. and Alton and I decided it would be a great idea to um, reenact the entrance of the masked rider onto the field for halftime. So Texas Tech's mascot is the masked rider, so it's a black horse, beautiful uh -oh. black horse, and this matador dress with a long flowing cape. And she rides in on the field with her arms outstretched uh -huh. and the guns up, symbol uh -huh. for Tech, and the horse just flies. Yeah. It's very cool, uh -huh. right? So Alton was the horse, and I was the guns up. And we were doing this on a concrete volleyball court. Well, so I leaned forward, and Alton's not that big. Uh -huh. And we both just went, well, my arms were out with the guns up, and so I landed on my head. So your face broke your fall, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> it was not my brightest moment. <laughs> so... I remember. I mean, top ten, but you know. No. Oh, I remember very little from about the next week or so. I had a, I had a concussion, oh bad concussion. So yeah. my vision was blurry and my memory was terrible. So I made an A and everything else that semester, but couldn't quite pull it off for, for Doctor Van. That's my one B. Uh huh. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I was killing myself, taking all these hours. And not only that, I was also playing in four um, four symphony orchestras. Mm -hmm. I was teaching six drum, drum lines, and I had 13 private students while I was doing this. I don't know how I survived. Mm -hmm. um, I never saw my roommates. Mm -hmm. It was it was terrible. Well, we'll just, so probably no boyfriend. Huh? So, <laughs> <laughs> Go. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was no boyfriend, there were no parties, there was no fun, there was no life. It was all work, 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 uh -huh. work. So yeah, definitely, I look back on my college experience now, and I think, what in the world was I thinking? Yeah. I could have taken four years and cut yeah. down to like 18 credits a semester, yeah. and maybe... Maybe like enjoyed yourself a little? Maybe, <laughs> a little. Yeah. So, I, so yeah, I, I actually do kind of regret just... Whoosh, flying through. Yeah. But that was a point in my life where I was so driven. I was so, yeah. so, so driven, mm -hmm. very goal oriented. Yeah. The people in my life were not that important to me, which I really regret. Mm -hmm. um, it was just this thing, this thing, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do right. this, 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 this. Yeah. So, wow. looks good on paper, but it was not really a good idea. <laughs> and you still managed to get a concussion. And Without. The one time I go out to have fun, and this is what happens. That's why I never left my apartment again, only to go to class. That's all. Well, break, break your fall with your face. I, I could see that that might distract you or, or, or discourage you from doing anything else. It's not a good moment. <laughs> well. So, all right. How... Um, so at what, oh, first, did you, was there, is there anybody that you went to school with there that is still in the, like, at least maybe, like, in the percussion field or anything? Yeah, so Lisa Rogers was 
finishing her grad degree, her master's degree. While you were an undergrad? While I was an undergrad. Okay. So she was there, I think, just one semester when I was in, okay. when I was starting Did my you know undergrad. Yeah, actually, we've known each other since I was in um, high school because she was also an undergrad at Texas Tech. So okay. she helped out with band camp, and she was always around when I would come for okay. lessons. And so, yeah, I, I definitely knew Lisa. Um, Randy Fluman was yeah. was a graduate student um, okay. whenever I was in high school. So, again, he was around when I was taking lessons and stuff from yeah. Alan. Again, did you know him or not at the time? Yep. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um Let's see. There are there are a lot of people. There are a whole bunch of people who are still in uh, music ed or who are percussion specialists. So like mm -hmm. Jeff Smith is still still around, and Daryl Umphoffer and Dave Polk and mm -hmm. um, Carrie Clear is that oh, yeah. uh, you know Carrie? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she was a year ahead of me in undergrad. Okay. Um, yeah. So so a bunch of people, and those Texas Tech percussion people are the percussion people really that I still keep track of mm -hmm. do you know what i mean besides yeah. the uncg people yeah. no nac people <laughs> it's okay. a different Let's, uh, different world yeah. <laughs> yeah so how did you end up there well so uh i decided toward the end of my undergrad that i wanted to be an orchestral performer that was my side that's what mm -hmm. i'm gonna do with my yeah. life and so i auditioned at um conservatory type places mm -hmm. for my grad so I auditioned at Curtis and Juilliard and NEC and Eastman, and I was accepted to all those places. And I mean, they're all fine, whatever. You know. Yeah, they're fine. Yeah. Um, and decided on NEC because of a boy. Really? Yes. Traveling with you, or that was there? He was there. Uh -huh. He had been at Tech for a couple of years. Uh -huh. And we, you said no boyfriend, meh. But <laughs> but it was one of those like. Because he practiced six hours a day and I practiced uh -huh. six hours a day, yeah. you know, it's just, and he is a percussionist, so yeah. that kind of happened. He still plays. We're still friends. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so he was at Berkeley, he transferred from Tech to Berkeley. Okay. And, um. Oh, so he does, he finished. He finished his undergrad at, at Berkeley. Okay. Yeah. So that's what tipped the scales in favor of Boston. Yes. Thinking, well, at least I would know somebody there yeah. you know if you're gonna go to a big strange city mm -hmm. it'd be nice to know somebody that and the day i visited juilliard and auditioned um two things happened one a juilliard student was pushed from the platform onto the subway track and two they were doing construction or renovation i think they were actually building a new uh, residence hall mm -hmm. at juilliard and a worker pushed a sack of concrete off and it landed on a car and killed somebody. And it, oh <laughs> I gosh. thought, these are bad omens. <laughs> I don't really want to go to school here. Yeah. And then um, Curtis is in the middle of... Uh, it's Philly, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's terrifying. <laughs> well, is it near UPenn? Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I came in, I auditioned, and I left, and I thought I'm never coming back to this okay. city ever. <laughs> my yeah. my uh, one of my sisters went to UPenn, and I I remember that, and I, I'm pretty sure that UPenn is kind of like in the middle of Philly, and the same thing. It was like, I just I mean, I whole, never we never visited her. Like no, <laughs> I mean we I think I think driving out it was like after five o'clock on a weekday. Mm -hmm. And there was nobody. Every business was shut, and the 
metal grate was over the doorways and there were homeless people. I just thought, oh my gosh, I can't live here. It's too scary. It was too scary. Yeah. Um, Versus Boston, which is known for being warm and friendly. Yes. But again, at least I knew somebody in Boston. So it wasn't quite so scary. So I I was accepted into Vic Firth's studio and... um, Again, really wanted thought I wanted to be an orchestral performer. Mm-hmm. I was about to say because this is a this would be this is an interesting transition to go from there to then UNCG eventually. Totally, <laughs> absolutely. So what was so what was your well so so I got there and um, I first started studying timpani with Vic. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a great player, and I always enjoyed watching him play with Boston Symphony. Yeah, but. Um, he was a, he was me. <laughs> um, on on timpani, I my feeling is that timpani came so natural to him as a player mm-hmm. that he never really had to grapple with technical issues himself mm-hmm. necessarily, yeah. and so he didn't really have to think through that as a for himself as a player. Sure. And so when we made mistakes, it was no, do it again, no, do it again, no, do it again. Yeah. You know what I mean? If he got really frustrated, he would play it and then say, basically, play it like this. Mm-hmm. Um, two, he was toward the end of his teaching career. I think he may have just been kind of over the whole thing a little bit. Yeah. And the thing is, outside of the studio, he's just a gentleman yeah. of a guy. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, really a lovely, lovely guy. Yeah. But in timpani lessons, he was just terrifying. Mm-hmm. Now, like, ironically enough, the best lessons I ever had with him were on anything but timpani. Mm. It's because he was such a great musician, a great musician, and it wasn't his baby. Timpani was his baby, right? And he could play everything else, so he was a fine percussionist, but he would approach everything else from a musical standpoint, Mm -hmm. and I had enough chops and technique that I could do anything, Um, but but the way he helped me think about things musically and... um, I don't know. That that part was really, really valuable. The mm-hmm. timpani lessons were really, really terrifying. Yeah. They really were. And I think, it, you know, like I said, I think that's why. Um, so I said he was mean. He wasn't mean. He just, it was not a good teacher-student match for yeah. timpani. Yeah. I left lots of those lessons in tears. <laughs> um, so at any rate, I, I practiced um, eight hours a day when I got to NEC. And... I was trying to emulate his timpani technique, which was a much firmer fulcrum than I was used to and a lot more tension generally, like in the wrist, than I was used to. Yeah. Um, and I, I was doing that transition with many, many hours and ended up with bilateral tendonitis by the end of that first semester. So I was in splints, both wrists, um, from May to like December, I was doing occupational therapy every week, and wow. it was really, uh, it was really pretty serious, and pretty severe, right. and depressing. <clears throat> Very too. depressing because I'd gone all the way up there to do performance, and yeah. you know, and you can't play. Can't play. Yeah. So I um, decided to add a second master's degree in musicology because okay. I always loved music history, mm-hmm. and um, so. I started that the second semester I arrived, mm-hmm. and um, and that was good. I really loved all those classes. I'm really glad I have that degree. That has definitely you know served me well having that that depth. Yeah. Um, because I had that master's, I didn't 
I didn't do a cognate area in my doctorate because I had a whole degree in musicology, oh, and okay. so, um, which which that's that's fine too. So anyway, after this experience or during this experience at New England Conservatory. Well, what happened to the boy? Well, <laughs> that didn't go so well. <laughs> I did for a little bit, and then it didn't. But we're still friends, that's so that's good. good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, like, um, I mean, if you went there, because some... I know, I went there for a boy, and then I never saw him, because I was practicing eight hours a day. He was practicing eight hours a day. Yeah. Like, you know, it just sort of, it didn't work out exactly like I thought it might. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Live and learn. Um, so, speaking of living and learning, so I, I get up to NAC, and I'm surrounded by all these other people who also want to be orchestral performers, mm-hmm. or percussionists. Yeah. And we're practicing the same 28-measure excerpts ad nauseum mm-hmm. all day every day yeah. and um musically for me that was not fulfilling and i love playing in orchestra and mm-hmm. i love orchestral music but yeah. that part of it that was not for me yeah um so that was a real that was a real kind of that was a crisis for me in mm-hmm. terms of my own professional development and yeah. self-identity and mm-hmm. um and I'd taken a big risk to go up there in terms of, you know, you talk about being outside of your comfort zone and, um, you know, small town girl, really, going to the big city all by herself. And yeah. nobody could understand me because I had a really bad West Texas drawl and I couldn't understand them. I know. I'm sure it's fine. Oh, yeah. It's never gone away. Um, <laughs> and you're sitting there like, I can't understand I can't understand saying. them either. It was just so <laughs> crazy. It was like... I, yeah, I remember going to a restaurant in January and ordering iced tea. <laughs> That's how I said it. Then, I'd like some iced tea. Yeah. It was a 15-minute conversation <laughs> with sign language and all kinds of stuff before I got the waiter to understand that I wanted tea with ice. So he brought me uh-huh. hot tea, uh-huh. a pot of hot tea with a tea bag in it, yeah. and a glass of ice. It, well, you made it work. Well, I'm sorry. It's but, not the same. <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's like, listen. I, He's like, this is... I, I put the two words together to give me what you wanted. <laughs> it was really, like I said, I might as well have gone to Russia. It was so, so foreign. And coming from a culture, I mean, I was driving when I was 12. Yeah. Farm kids just drive early, and mm-hmm. and Texans drive everywhere all the time for yeah. everything. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what. I didn't even take a car with me to Boston because there's no point. I or mean, it's all public transportation. Yeah. That was weird, too. So you're listening to the tea drivers saying, I want to park my car and pop it. I mean, it's sure, like, yeah. where are we? So, um, in, so in Boston, um, so you have this, the last thing you said was about the crisis. You had like a, what am I going to do? Because this was getting tedious and... Un- yeah, I just couldn't... Uh, to me, at that point, it almost felt like I was going to have to give up music because this path that I thought I was on, or that I'd been on, mm-hmm. was no longer the path I wanted to be on. But I didn't really... I hadn't identified a plan B. Sure. You know? Mm-hmm. So I finished... I mean, I finished both master's degrees and mm-hmm. went to work for the president. Of, of New England Conservatory. Oh, okay. So I was one of three assistants. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one one assistant dealt mostly with faculty issues okay. and internal like administrators. Yeah. One of the assistants dealt primarily with trustees and external relations fundraising, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I did everything else. So okay. scheduling and whatever, letter writing. Yeah. I was in charge of his concert series, so okay. booking the performers and schedule. Yeah. So it was a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, how much, what was the pay for that? Gosh, I think it was like $20,000 a year God, or something. Oh yeah, it was, it was terrible. <laughs> Did you have roommates? I hope so. Yeah, oh yeah. I lived in this great house that had been converted into, into apartments. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there, were, there were five of us in this uh-huh. house. Had one bathroom. And there were actually only... All females? No. Okay. There were two guys, three girls. There were actually only three bedrooms in the house. Mm-hmm. So two of the guys and one of the girls had a bedroom. Um, another girl had the dining room okay. that we converted into a bedroom. And I had a, I mean, there were like two living rooms. I had one of the living rooms okay. that we converted to a bedroom. But, you know, that's how we afforded to live in Boston. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you didn't have a car. I didn't have a car. Yeah. No, I remember eating... Um, Generic brand cornflakes mm-hmm. and generic brand spaghetti and yeah. lots of ramen noodles. Yeah. And when I, was, when I was feeling wealthy, I would buy frozen vegetables to put in the ramen noodles. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woman, Living <I> large. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Those were the days. Didn't you, I remember some, uh, I think at some point you taught, you told me about maybe like one of the trips to the airport where didn't you didn't you like try to drive around at some point well and it like went re- like really uh, horribly wrong yeah. <laughs> yeah well so the last um well after i got this job at the president's office yeah. i moved further west of the city okay and it was not close to a subway station mm-hmm. it was sort of close to an amtrak okay. a commuter rail yeah um but being that far out, you kind of needed a car to do things like go to the grocery store. and So I brought my car at that point. I yeah. drove my car up from Texas. So I had a car. Mm-hmm. Was this the, the 1980s? This is your dad's old truck? Or? No, this was a 1987 Buick Skylark. Ooh. I know. It was fancy, too. <laughs> well, yeah. So Did you have a tape player there? I had a cassette player, yes. I Excellent. Know. That's, that's a step up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's all you need. That's all you really need. Yeah. Yeah. It was fancy. It had a digital display. Oh, Like, nice. the speedometer was... Yeah. It was nice. It was you you could get something other than Al Green and uh, Kenny Loggins albums. Yes. Correct. On, on cassette. That's right. We got some Aerosmith. Yeah, there you go. What else? God, I don't know. The soundtrack to Batman. Oh, The, the right. Danny Elfman. Yeah, okay. Sound. Oh, yeah. That was good. That was good stuff. What about the Prince Bat? Yes, of course. Okay, good. Yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> These yes, are the driving in Boston was not a happy experience for me. Uh, I, I, those streets make no sense. There's no grid ever anywhere. Yeah. Probably in the whole state of Massachusetts or in all of New England, there's no grid. 
Gridstone, nobody understands. Nobody it's understands grids. <laughs> like, why? Well, it's so much easier. <laughs> it's because they took, like, cattle trails and paved them, and that's what became the streets. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, from colonial days or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, gosh, I, I, you know, I had a blowout on the turnpike, on the Massachusetts mm-hmm. turnpike once, and that was... You know, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> Just driving on the turnpike yeah. is really taking your life into your own hands, and then your tire blows, and you're really, it was it was bad. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so a car in Boston, I would not necessarily recommend that to, I don't think to your, for your listeners. It's like living in New York, same thing. Why? You why? You just don't. Or Chicago. Just like don't too. do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a good idea. Even if you're in the western suburbs, still mm. probably not a great idea. Yeah. So wait, how long, was that just a year that you did that job? Um, it was... Was it even a year? Or? Yeah, it was over a year. It was, I guess, about a year and a half okay. in that job. Were you still playing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was playing a lot, actually. I was playing with uh, Boston Philharmonic a bunch under ben- Benjamin Zander. Mm-hmm. have a good story about that. Uh, we were playing a Mahler symphony, and I really wish I could remember which one it was, but I had the bass drum part. Uh-huh. And we would get to this one spot where there was a big, like, quadruple forte bass drum note. So it really still could be any Mahler symphony at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. This <laughs> is not a distinguishing <laughs> feature. <laughs> right. And I realized this <laughs> at any rate. Um, <laughs> so I'm playing this bass drum, you know, for all I'm worth. And every single time we get there, he cuts off the orchestra. And he says, ah, no, 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 we need more, more bass drum every time. So I am so frustrated at this point that I take this part into my lesson okay. with Vic. Yeah. And I said, I'm at a loss. I don't know what else to do. I'm playing this as loud as I can possibly yeah. play it without breaking something. Yeah. And so he, we pull in a bass drum and put the part up on the stand, and he says, okay, well, let's, you know, play it. So we're, we're singing through it. We get to the part, and I play. He goes, oh, no, no, I see what the problem is. He said, when you play this note, you look too nice. He said, the next time you get to it, I want you to, like, yeah. make this yeah. face, right? Angry. Yeah, an angry face. Yeah. And I said, really? He said, trust me. Trust me. Uh-huh. It'll work. So next rehearsal, I get in there. We get to the note, I go, and play it, and he cuts off. I thought, damn it. He cuts off, and he said, that's it. That's it. <laughs> oh, my gosh, it worked. <laughs> and you, did, you, did you even, like, take a little bit off just to be like, is it? <laughs> no, I played it the way I've been playing it. I just made a face, and yeah. apparently that's what we needed. <laughs> just needed to look a little more intimidating yeah. or aggressive or yeah. something. <laughs> that was funny. That was good. That's a good lesson. Isn't, isn't that, that good? Sometimes that's just sometimes it's acting. just it is. It is percussion is theater, really. Yes. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. That's powerful. So okay, so you still yeah yeah. That. So I was definitely I was still playing. And, yeah. Um, so what, how, at what point did you? Because from there you went to UNCG, right? I did. So, so how did that come about? So at some point I decided that. Um, well, I had the benefit of having a really great teacher in Allen Shin mm-hmm. um, through high school and undergrad. Yeah. Um, I'd had some really great teaching from Vic, um, but in different ways yeah. than I had great teaching from Allen. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And it was really interesting to me to um, combine what I'd learned from those two mm-hmm. 
and see where there were overlaps or not overlaps. And I thought, you know, I think I think this is what I want to do. I think I want to have an impact like they've had an impact on me. Yeah. I'd also at NAC taken lessons from Frank Epstein and from Will Hudgens and um, from are they all are from Fred also Booth. Precious, I'm sorry. Yeah, Frank and uh, Will were both in Boston Symphony okay. also, and um, yeah, so it was kind of a you know, kind of a revelation that, gee, maybe I do want to teach after all, mm -hmm. um, just higher ed. Yeah. And so I started looking for doctoral programs mm -hmm. and, um, you know, did a lot of research to figure out what type of program I thought would be the best fit for me. So you're looking at okay, programs. Okay, so yeah, looking at programs and um, settled on UNCG for a lot of reasons. Uh, one was court and his uh, emphasis on pedagogy, and I really yeah. wanted to be a good yeah. teacher of yeah. percussion. Yeah. Um, one was I got a fantastic fellowship, so uh, they, you know, that meant my doctorate was paid for, which was great. You got a fellowship, I got not, a, a, not an assistantship. No, I got a fellowship. For how? So there, it's it? through the graduate school, it's a competitive fellowship, it's based on um, GRE scores and yeah. I don't know what else, interview or, anyway, yeah. So, awesome. yeah, it was awesome. It was great. Was that for the, for the whole time you were there? For the whole time. So, great. So the conditions of the fellowship, the first year you're not even allowed to have a, a GTA position. Yeah. They just want you to be a student, mm -hmm. which was great. And then you're guaranteed a GTA position after that as part of the, as part of the fellowship. But mm -hmm. you still are earning the fellowship stipend. And um, so that, you know, that paid for, I mean, there was a total tuition waiver, and so the fellowship stipend paid for the, my living expenses. And so you didn't have to take out any loans? No, not for my doctorate and not for my undergrad. But, but the but master's. <laughs> in Boston, yeah. at a really expensive private school, yeah. really negated yeah. <laughs> the other two, oh, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, at least, at least I got two degrees that, that's didn't cost you anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So, yeah, so I moved down to Greensboro. I started my doctorate in um, August of 95. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was a great choice. That was a great experience. I loved every single class I took. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and that sort of set me on the, the new path, you know, that I never never saw coming at all. I never envisioned myself teaching college. Mm -hmm. Once I got into that realm, I never envisioned myself as an administrator. Mm -hmm. but well, because you were not, because you were just, your degree for your master's was essentially just going to play, right? That's all, that's all that's set up to be, right? Right. So I had an MM in performance yeah. and an MM in musicology. Mm -hmm. Um so, so yeah, that's that's really all that was. And anybody at NAC getting a master's in performance really was getting it to to play, just to hone their skills toward orchestral auditions, yeah. mostly. Mm -hmm. Pianists, you know, they're looking yeah. for solo careers, some violinists, singers. Right. But, but, yeah, most of the rest of the instrumentalists are really looking toward orchestral auditions. Uh, and, and kind of because I asked this previously, anybody in that program that is still – playing I'm sure but like did any of them go teach too at some point or that you know of? Um, I think I think they're all teaching to some extent probably the best known of my classmates is Ted Atkatz oh yeah 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 um, he was 
two years behind me, okay. I want to say. Um, so yeah, so he was he was there when yeah. I was there. Um, and I imagine he's teaching some, yeah. you know, most orchestral performers do. Yeah. So, was, but in terms of college teachers, no, okay. like no university teachers. Um, was, uh, what about, was Nancy Zeltzman? She's yeah, Nancy was in, yeah, she was at Boston Conservatory when okay. I was at NEC, and mm-hmm. I took lessons from her, and okay. um, one of the, one of my sort of funniest, uh, but best Nancy Zeltzman memories uh, she was premiering a piece that she had written. No, she had not written this piece. Someone had written for her. She was premiering it. She mm-hmm. did not have enough time in preparation to memorize it. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, 37 pages long. Really, really long. <laughs> so you need a page she hired me to be her page turner. All right. Yeah. So, you know. Where are you standing? Are you... So, <laughs> exactly. This is an interesting setup, right? <laughs> So her marimba is set up perpendicular to the audience. Okay. And she had, I want to say she had four music stands. It may have only been three, but it was a bunch of music stands. Mm-hmm. Um, and on each of those, you know, two two pages per, so what, she, we're looking at six up. Um, but they weren't all, it wasn't like six and then you turn. I mean, some of them were in groups of three and some, just depending on... How it made sense musically. <laughs> right. So I'm reading, so I'm standing behind the music stands, okay. reading her score upside down while she's playing. Oh my gosh. And then turning pages. So I had a page turn stand on both sides, yeah. just depending on when I needed to turn and what I was this. turning. <laughs> it was it was a pretty crazy experience. And I had turned for pianists before yeah. a lot, but mm-hmm. That's a little different. <laughs> <It was laughs> we, we have a plan for this. It was really... <laughs> there is no plan for this, let me tell you. It was insane. Uh, so that was one of the more interesting you, uh, Boston experiences. Nothing, that you, nothing went awry. Okay, yeah, good. yeah. It was a, it was a very good but performance. You, that might be like the third most stressful performance of your life. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a question about that. <laughs> Yes. Oh my gosh, that was pretty stressful, but <laughs> you know, but a good experience, and it makes a good story. Yeah. So, so yes, Nancy, Nancy was there, and okay. that was good. What kinds of uh, so what kind of stuff? Um, I know some of the answers of this because I did my grad work at Nancy as well. Right. Um, what kinds of things do you are most um, remembered? Um, there was, there were several things. Um, first in terms of studio teaching applied lessons, um, I really gained an appreciation for each student's development as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally agree with that. yeah, yeah. And I really gained an appreciation for, uh, using literature as the primary teaching tool versus using technique as the primary teaching tool. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those two things have, well, I know, I mean, they highly influenced my teaching and have served me well for yeah. a lot of years. Right. Um, in ensembles, I was exposed to a whole new type of literature than what I've been exposed to in either of the other institutions in the past. So it was really glad about that so that just sort of broadened my horizons in terms of percussion ensemble repertoire and what was possible and um and what what I really needed to 
to pull off a comprehensive percussion program. Mm. So when I inherited my own, you know, yes. at Brevard College, right. um, I was able to go in and advocate for a five octave marimba or a this or a that or this mm. or that, and um, you know, had something to point to in terms of a aspirational program mm -hmm. um, and aspirational repertoire and yeah. that sort of thing. Well, you And you had a, if I remember, didn't you have a five and a third marimba? I do still, still do. The Demaro, right? That's right. Went to a low A? Yes. When did you get that? I got that when I was in Boston. Um, I want to say I got that in 1993 or 4. Uh -huh. um, it belonged to a guy, well, so... Texas Tech bought one just like that yeah. when I was a student there. I think yeah. it was in 1988, maybe. And yeah. I love that instrument. We all love that yeah. instrument. It's just a great instrument. And so I told myself that if I ever was able to get my hands on one, I would. Yeah. Well, one of those five and a thirds, there weren't very many of them built mm -hmm. at all. One of those ended up with, um, with a student who had gone to school with Alan Teal. Yeah. Do you know Alan? I do. Oh, gosh, I love, Alan. I love Alan. So one of Alan's students uh -huh. ended up with one of these instruments okay. and then moved to Georgia to get his doctorate. Yeah. I can't remember the guy's name. I'll think of it when I'm trying not to think of it. But um, <laughs> anyway, sort of the, the word, you know, the word on the street was that he wasn't playing that instrument anymore. Mm -hmm. So I got his number from Alan Shin yes. through Alan Teal, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and called the guy up and I would call him about once every six months mm -hmm. say hey this is Laura Phillips are you interested in selling your marimba you yeah. know this is who I am blah 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 right. so um, I and, assume not in a sing song tone no 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 so eventually uh, you you know the first few responses were well no I'm not really playing it but I'm just I'm just not ready to get rid of it I'm like okay well if you change your mind just here's my number give mm -hmm. me a call so I'll call you know six months later mm -hmm. so finally he said yeah I think I'm ready to sell it so we settled on a price and I went and got a loan <laughs> from the bank yeah, yeah. Um, paid cash for half of it and got a loan for the other half of it and then he drove I rented a I don't know, a U-Haul or something. Mm -hmm. And he drove it up from Athens, Georgia, and I drove down from Boston, and we met at a rest stop in Virginia at like 4 o'clock in the morning. I mean, we just <laughs> each started yeah. and drove, yeah. right? 4 o'clock in the morning. This thing was in 5 billion pieces. <laughs> I mean, it was. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I got it back to my apartment in Boston, which was tiny. Yeah. I'd already moved out the sofa. So yeah. I didn't have a place to sit anymore. <laughs> but I had a marimba. Who cares? That's what so the for. <laughs> it took me like an entire week to figure out how to put everything back together. Yeah, it was yeah. so, what does this screw yeah. go to? Where does this wing this. nut go? Yeah. <laughs> Look, is this, is this critical? Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, and this is before cell phones. This is before yeah. the internet. You know, yeah. It's not like I could Google how do you put right. this thing together. I'm sitting in my living room going, I, I don't know. So. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's when I ended up with the marimba. <laughs> but I'm very happy to have it. I yeah. still have it. It's in my office here. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so. Yeah. Because um, I, I remember, because uh, it was in your office at, in the, in the old house. In the house, yeah. And, uh, and I was like, I just got to work, looked at it, we were like, what? Are these extra like is that is that, yeah. a, is that which note I think it is? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's the little way. 
low, low and A. And the, the A1, right? No, A, A2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's way the heck down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> that never instrument. use it. It's, it's pretty, or barely, if ever. I, yeah, I've used it a couple of times. I played an arrangement of Maple Leaf Rag and took it down an octave. The lowest note happened to be that A, so nice. that was perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Yeah. You can you can use it. <laughs> you can make use of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, and I remember also you uh, you directed the younger ensemble, mm-hmm. and I was in that like my first semester because yep. when I was getting my feet wet, and I was like, Ooh. I I thought you were great. I loved you. You were, you were like showing it. You would show everyone how to play when when somebody you demonstrate it, and then playing again and demonstrate because it was like all new people and I had not had like a real ensemble I had some ensemble experience yeah. in undergrad but not in that way and so it was like so that was like a great way in for me oh good I, like I did I'm glad I loved that experience I loved yeah. I loved teaching that ensemble yeah yeah I still obviously I still really love percussion ensemble yeah 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 oh, that's so wild um so when um so what now we're gonna we're gonna jump ahead considerably here, but when did you decide to go into at Brevard, you decided at some point obviously to go into um, uh, like chair or whatever. administration? Yeah, so when did yeah. that when and why? So um, let's see, I guess I guess it was my twelfth year at uh-huh. Brevard. Yeah. Um, the music program director mm-hmm. decided to step down. She'd been doing it for, I don't know, seven or eight years. Yeah. And at that point, I, I guess I seemed to be the obvious choice. So the division chair appointed me to that role. So yeah. so within that division of fine arts, there was art, music, and theater. So there was a music component of that. Um, that was two years before our... NASM accreditation. Yeah, yeah. That's one reason that my colleague (laughs) decided that would be a good time to step down. Yeah. (laughs) So. Who would be a good person? Is there anyone else who's. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She wrote the last one. I'm not going to mention any names, but Bora Chanklin would be a great person. Right. I think. So, as I came into that role, the division chair who'd been there since I got there. Uh, left. She took another position, mm-hmm. and we had an interim chair. Yeah. Uh, the interim chair was a musician, but was coming from a dean's position. Um, he, he was not really interested in doing much in the way of day-to-day operational stuff. Yeah. And so I became, at the same time, the de facto division chair. Okay. Uh, so I'm trying to run the music program and get the self-study together, and... Um, and then at the same time, his partner mm-hmm. had cancer and, and actually, in fact, died at the end of his second year. And then mm-hmm. Michael left. And so, so anyway, those two years were pretty intense because I was doing the music role yeah. and really de facto the division chair, too. Yeah. So when Michael left, um, my predecessor in the division chair role, um, the dean called and this was... I think this was August 2nd, and faculty were supposed to report August 12th. Mm. And so I became the division chair officially (laughs) 
you know, 10 days before the semester started. Um, And that was on an acting basis for a semester, and then the division voted. And so, um, I don't know, so I didn't really answer your question. I just sort of gave you a bit of a timeline. No, no, no. The longer I was at Brevard, the more administrative responsibilities I was given. And, um, you know, by that point, I was involved in institutional accreditation Mm -hmm. for Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. Um, and, and I was good at it and I enjoyed it. And so whenever the Dean asked if I wanted to be division chair, he said, you're really the obvious choice. And I said, I would really love to do it. Mm -hmm. And I meant that some people are really reluctant administrators and, um, you know, it's like, well, it's my turn sort of a thing. Yeah, Yeah. And I was, I never felt like that. I always felt like it was a real privilege to be in a position to be able to help the faculty members in my division and my department mm-hmm. do their jobs better, you know, give yeah. them the resources they needed or the support they needed or yeah. whatever to really, I, I looked at it as a real facilitator role and yeah. a role to help them, whatever, facilitate collaborations or partnerships yeah. and, you know, provide opportunities for the students that they might not ordinarily have. And so that's what I enjoy about it. There's, I'm, I'm always suspicious about administrators who um, think of it as a power position. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, there's some quote-unquote power, I guess, that comes with managing a budget and, you know, you got to sign off on stuff. Yeah. But that's not the purpose of the position. That's just stuff that has to happen, right? right? Somebody has to be in charge of the money, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> um but no, the rewarding parts of the position are really the parts where, you know, you talk to this faculty member and they're involved with a tutoring program in this, in this uh, underperforming inner city school. And then you talk to a faculty member in social work mm-hmm. who's also doing counseling in the same school. Yeah. And you go, oh, hey, one of my colleagues is doing this. And then you put them together and then it turns into a grant. And yeah. then, then what you're doing in this school is even bigger and better. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love. That's, no, that's great. <laughs> that's the fun that's stuff. That's what you should be doing. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I like being able to uh, kind of keep an eye on the big picture and, again, help my faculty plug in in ways that that they want to, but then that makes their work even more effective or have mm-hmm. more of an impact. Or same with the students, to give, you know, to give them resources that they wouldn't have access to or... Yeah to make the facilities better or better equipment or whatever it is. Right. So so that's the part that I'm like that I, I do like. So I was able to do that at Brevard and I was really happy to be able to to do that. I think mm-hmm. we did a lot of good work at Brevard that'll far outlast me and that's what you that's what you really want. Yeah. You don't want things to fall apart mm-hmm. once you leave, you right, know. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like things are going well there. And so I'm really happy to have a chance to make a impact somewhere else too yeah like where you are now like where I am now yeah yay yay (laughs) thank you Laura you're welcome Pete (laughs) it's been fun it has (laughs) once again a huge thank you to Laura Franklin It was a lot of fun. And now, raves. I'm going to start with my book rave this week. 
which is Hotel at the Corner of Bitter and Sweet by Jamie Ford. I came upon this book because it was a runner-up for the local Community One Read, which is a program I love. These programs done throughout the country typically function as a book club for a city or community. The author comes into town, gives a presentation, discusses the book, and answers questions in front of an audience. And I enjoy attending those events. The book is a retelling of the classic Romeo and Juliet story, with the main characters being a Chinese-American boy and a Japanese-American girl during the early days of World War II and the internment of Japanese-Americans. It's better than the original Romeo and Juliet story because, and this is a spoiler, the main characters get to be older than 13! Hooray! It's a beautiful story and a quick read, and I recommend it. My movie rave this week is Love and Mercy. It's a biopic about beach boy Brian Wilson. It focuses on two periods of his life. Young Brian Wilson, played by Paul Dano, during the recording of Pet Sounds and Smile. And middle-aged Brian Wilson, played by John Cusack, during the 1980s when he is trying to get out of a toxic relationship with his caregiver and therapist, played by Paul Giamatti, and the woman who helps him break free, played by Elizabeth Banks. The middle-aged part of this movie is good, but I want to focus specifically on the recording sessions that are a large part of the early part of this movie. From what I've gathered, the filmmakers got actual current session musicians to play the music in the movie. The musicians were, not surprisingly, good enough for them to play over the actual tracks and not do much overdub. That is typical of movies. But you get a sense of, one, the ways Brian Wilson was trying to create the music that was in his head at the time, and two, the madness and time and frustration that is recording music. In addition, Paul Dano as young Brian Wilson is fantastic. He actually looks like young Brian Wilson. He plays piano and sings similar to him, and he shows an acting range that has been mostly unheard of for him. And my song rave this week is the Beach Boys' Surfer Girl. It's likely my favorite song of theirs. I'm a fan of classic 50s triplet rock. Enough so that I made a mixtape of triplet rock in college. When you listen to the Beach Boys catalog, a lot of their stuff sounds simple and trite. But if you try to actually play and sing it, watch out. I've seen pop stars of today try to cover their stuff. Yikes. They've got no chance. And that, to use an overused term, is the genius of Brian Wilson. Those Beach Boy harmonies are pretty amazing. And making the difficult sound easy, that's the formula, and he is your real MVP. Thanks again for listening. The show notes are on the iTunes page for Pete's Percussion Podcast and on the website, petesambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. In addition, you can download the podcast on SoundCloud. And now I'm also on Stitcher. 
So if you have the Stitcher app, we're on there now. Do me a favor. Like the podcast on the podcast page on Facebook. And go to iTunes, leave a comment and a rating. I'd love to hear from you. Join me next time when my guest is River City Drum Corps Director, Mr. Ed White. (laughs) 